Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm Jim Margulis, owner and managing editor of SoxMachine.com, and if you need help remembering the date, it's the week of Monday, April 27th, 2020. If you're wondering where Josh is, he'll be taking over later in the show, where we'll talk about the various trips of news, White Sox-related and baseball-related and esports-related, and we'll also answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But with no baseball, thanks to the coronavirus, we can cut the chit-chat and get right to the man of the hour. He's a senior baseball writer for The Athletic, and he's the author of a great new book that just came out, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. It applies the tenets of behavioral science to various baseball scenarios in a very accessible way, especially if you're new to the field of heuristics and decision-making. He's joining us now on the Sox Machine podcast to talk about his book, his top prospect list, and all the things currently hanging in the balance. Thanks, Keith, for joining us on the Sox Machine podcast. Uh, I'll start the way that every email from a corporation starts. In these uncertain times... How's the household? The household is fine. Thank you. We're very fortunate. All five of us are here right now. We've got kids shuttling back and forth for shared custody. But uh, this weekend, we've got everybody and everybody is healthy and actually pretty happy, which is the best thing. I mean, I know my daughter is kind of bummed that the rest of the school year has been canceled here in Delaware, but she understands mm-hmm what the reason is. So we're, we're doing pretty well, all things considered. How about yours? Uh, pretty good. I mean, just moved to uh, Nashville. So it's, it's like, uh, I would liken it to going to Chicago on a business trip and never leaving the O'Hare area. Right. It's like, you're aware of all the cool things to do, but you can't do them. And so yeah, that's kind of hovering around. 
Yeah, I love Nashville, and I was supposed to go there. I'm assuming we're not going to be able to do it to visit Parnassus Books in three weeks. Um, I'd love to get back there at some point. It's an amazing bookstore. But also I was going to get to come futz around Nashville for two days and yeah. go to Vanderbilt Games and go to Barista Parlor and 210 Jack and Mas Tacos and all my favorite spots there. And now it's like, no, I don't get to go. I understand, like, first world problems, but yeah. I love Nashville. Yeah, yeah I was so looking, looking forward, forward to, to this. Yeah, it's a great city. Yeah, on a related note to uh, your, your book tour, I was wondering, is this a good time or a bad time to release a book? I can see it both ways, you know, bad because it interrupts some of your promotion, but also good in that a lot of people suddenly have more time to read and absorb. Right. This is an excellent question. I mean, my answer, is it a good time or a bad time? My answer would be yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we did a uh, so Politics and Prose, the great bookstore in D.C. where Jay Jaffe and I had done a talk a couple years ago. We got something like 120 people there, which I could not believe. So they did a virtual event with myself and Sean Doolittle, who he's a pitcher for the Washington Nationals. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the two of us just did a talk for an hour, and we took questions for about 10 minutes afterwards, and it was phenomenal. Well, you had to buy a book to get to watch the event, hmm. and there were 160 people watching the event, so I'm assuming that's how many books they sold. So for a virtual event, they sold more books than they sold books the day I actually went to the store a couple oh, of years cool. ago. Right, so I'm thinking that's pretty great. It's really great for the store, right? The most important thing is an independent bookstore where they're, you know, they're all kind of struggling just because they're not open right mm-hmm. now. They got to make a bunch of money doing a virtual event, which I'm absolutely over the moon about. But also I was like, we sold some books. That's really yeah. good. Like maybe people are still buying books. I'm very happy to hear that, to see that for selfish reasons, but also non-selfish reasons. Like I love independent bookstores and I want to see them stay open. Yeah. I was thinking on our end at Sox Machine, you know, normally with a book review, we'd you know, talk to you about it. I'd review it and then we'd move on to the games that are being played. But now that there are no games being played, we can right. stretch out and run a book club because people have been interested in that and all details after the interview about that. And, uh, you know, more time to, uh, actually talk about it and think about it. And, uh, that's, I guess not, yeah, it's, it's a way to salvage, I guess the, uh, the baseball right. season during, during this time. Right. We have to talk about something, right? Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk board games or movies or whatever, that's fine too. But you know, the, the book is one thing for us to talk about. And, um, I, I, as long as you don't ask me to play public health expert, because I have been asked that so many times, when is baseball coming back and will there be fans? I'm like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not even like the wrong kind of doctor. I'm certainly not an <laughs> epidemiologist. And I had one on my podcast last week in part because he's a reader and we've communicated on social media. But also it's like I need an expert. I need somebody who actually knows what he's talking about because I don't. Yeah, and I live with one, so I don't have to ask you questions about ah, that either. So, excellent, excellent. <laughs> uh, That's very useful. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to this book, and, and last time you were on the show, we talked about thinking fast and slow, and you also mentioned Elastic as another book about uh, 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 flexible thinking. And mm-hmm. I know you have a ton of interest in this in the book. You have a lot of footnotes and a lot of references, and I'm curious whether this was a tough book to keep to a relatively tidy amount of pages. I think it's like 230 something uh, versus it seems like you could have maybe gone 400 or 500 if you really let loose. I could. Yes and no. Yes. In the sense, like there are definitely more topics, more cognitive biases and lots more baseball mistakes or bad decisions to potentially talk about. I ran out of steam and I'll be perfectly honest. By the time I got done with what you see, I was just like, I need to, 
stop and do something else. Like I think and smart baseball was only a little bit longer than this, maybe somewhere between five and eight thousand words of of main text longer than this. And it seems like that's probably about my length for a book, whether it's attention span or energy level or whatever. That's about where I start to taper off. And the one thing that constantly worried me with this book, and I had a lot of things that sort of worried me writing this book that was a little bit more out of my comfort zone, Mm -hmm. was just making sure that all the material was as strong as I could make it. If I felt like I was flagging, then the material would show it. And whether it's just the quality of the writing or the quality of the research that went into it, I did not want anything to go into this book that I really thought was subpar because of, again, that recognition that I'm writing a bit outside my area of expertise and or a lot outside of my area of expertise and wanted to make sure that what I put into the book was as solid as possible and reflected the best writing that I could do. And so that's why I sort of got to this point. We tinkered, my editor and I had tossed it around another couple of ideas. And eventually I was like, I, I think I'm done. I think this is the best place for me to stop. And one of the fun things about reading this book is is reading each of the uh, concepts and then trying to apply it to the White Sox and our and our you know experience. But I imagine other fans of other teams are doing the same thing. And one one that was particularly interesting was a topic I've written about. I didn't use the word moral hazard or the term moral hazard, but uh, on page 161, I'll read your words back to you a little bit because people may not have read your book yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very nature of the job of a sports team's general manager entails moral hazard at its most general definition, that the person making the decision doesn't bear some or all of the risk entailed in that decision. In other words, the decision goes wrong. Someone else will have to clean up the mess. And I've written about the White Sox, how they might be the one team that actually abides by moral hazard, or at least seems to understand the risk because Jerry Reinsdorf teams don't fire their general managers or team presidents unless they ask to be fired. Uh, right. with, the Bulls, with the White Sox, you know, Kenny Williams has been there forever. Rick Hans had a second chance to get a rebuild started, which most teams don't do. And you know, with the Manny Machado pursuit, it seemed like they were they understood why Machado would be appealing for their team. But I don't think they were enthusiastic about adding that kind of contract because they would have to deal with the ramifications if it went bad faster than expected. And I'm curious, you know, when you think about that uh, and, and what you know about the industry, whether that's possibly true in this case or whether it's really more a matter of Jerry Reinsdorf not being enthusiastic about setting markets. And this is more of a byproduct. That's interesting. Um, you know, because it does feel like the White Sox have tried. They've been active in the market for some long-term deals that would pose the moral hazard risk, right? If you're Rick Hahn right now and you sign a player to an eight to 10-year contract, you've got to think there's a pretty good chance I'm no longer the GM by the time this contract is over for whatever reason, right? Whether it's for firing, which as you said, they don't really do, or just the decision at some point, say, I just don't want to do this anymore. GM's job is kind of exhausting. I'm always amazed when guys are willing to do that for 10 plus years. I know it's a lot of money. And for some people, that's a motivator. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, a, it's, you know, I like money too, but I like lots of other things. And, um, I think I would find that job kind of exhausting. Um, certainly mentally exhausting after enough time. So I, I, but whatever the reason, if I were in Rick Hahn's shoes right now, giving out a contract of that length, it would at least occur to me that it, this is going to be someone else's to finish, right? Not necessarily. It's going to be someone else's mess to clean up. I use that in the book often because where moral hazard kind of matters is where the initial decision is bad. And there's a reasonable chance that the contract will, will go wrong. And so then the last few years become a mess. And that's, you know, it feeds on itself, right? If you're the GM who signs, well, I don't want to say Machado because I don't think the contract was bad at all, but you signed the Albert Pujols contract. You're that GM. You give Albert Pujols at age, whatever he was when he left the 
Cardinals, 32 or so, you give them the 10-year contract, you know at that point there's a pretty decent risk that contract's not going to work out. Mm -hmm. And you will know at that point if that contract doesn't work out because of the amount of money you're spending and because it's Albert Pujols, you're probably not still going to be employed by the team, at least not in the same capacity mm. at the moment after that contract starts to go sour. That's really where moral hazard comes into play in, in baseball, where it's that interaction too. You take the high-risk decision in the first place knowing – there's a pretty good chance it doesn't pan out. If it does pan out, great. Maybe you get to keep your job. Doesn't pan out only increases the chances that you lose your job. And then so think of tr like try mentally to sort of now work that backwards into the decision-making calculus of the decision maker deciding, well, do I take this additional or extraordinary risk signing this particular player or, you know, say trading a bunch of prospects for um, – for short-term help in the majors, Bill Bavese trading away Adam Jones and a couple of other prospects to get Eric Bedard, mm -hmm. another deal where it was pretty clear Bavese was at the end of his tenure, was fine trading away a lot of potential future value, most of which turned out to be Adam Jones, just to get some short-term help that wasn't even necessarily all that helpful. Like I think that's another would be the White Sox example in that case. Yes. Except, yeah. uh, except the GM wasn't at the end of his tenure. Right. What, and I don't know if like in that case, did he think – but it, it so the moral hazard thing comes comes into play if he thinks he's not going to be the GM that long, or thinks there's some job insecurity at that point that might further motivate his thinking. It's not that he'd specifically be saying I'm going to do the moral hazard. It's right. This is these are subconscious biases that just sway our thinking without us even necessarily realizing it. And it might be more that process of saying, you know, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. I better do something that maybe gives me a chance to save my jobs. Let me swing for the fences yeah. and go make a couple of these big, bold, high risk acquisitions that if they work out, I get to keep my job. And if they don't work out, well, I was probably gonna lose my job anyway. When it comes to the, the this discussion between you know optimization and efficiency and you know the unwise or wise decisions or the, the, the fenceful decisions, it seems like there is a tension between wanting teams and players and so forth to do the the optimal thing. But as we've seen with the free agent markets, at least in the uh, two of the last three seasons, this winter was uh, a little more free flowing. It seems like you need a little bit of inefficiency to make it actually fun. You need a team like the Royals. You need a team like the, the Dave Stewart Diamondbacks in order to have fun things to write about <laughs> a little bit. And, and it's a little bit fun when everybody is scratching their heads about something professionals are doing. And I'm curious, like as you advocate or as you explain, you know, the optimal decision making, if you're wondering, uh, you know, maybe. I should maybe I shouldn't go so gung ho on this because I lose a lot of my material just having fun with Twitter about uh, some decisions that are bad decisions of day one just because they're fun and interesting. The uh, well, that's the Mets now, right? The Mets are that team, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that is the team that I have had multiple other front office executives say that's the team you want to make a deal with. That specifically, Brody Van Wagenen is the GM you want to make a trade with. He is seen as the worst in terms of, in baseball just in terms of the player personnel decisions he's making and that if he calls you to try to make a deal you've got a chance for to to come out really come out ahead in the exchange hmm. that's the kind of inefficiency you're talking about that makes our jobs interesting when he traded the two guys I rated as the top two prospects in the Mets system at the time, Jared Kalanick and Justin Dunn Kalanick would be the Mets number one prospect right now if he were still there uh, for 
what was left of Robinson Cano, sort of the wrong half of Robinson Cano's contract in Edwin Diaz. That was pretty widely seen as in the industry as a sort of what the hell kind of move, exactly the kind of move you're talking about. And let those of us on the outside have a bit of a field day saying, what you know, what are the Mets doing? Yeah. And then it went way worse than the Mets even because then even people like us. But like I thought the deal would go poorly. It went worse than that. You know, Edwin Diaz completely lost his slider last year, whether that was something with him or it was the happy fun ball. I don't know. But the fact that it went that much worse, I think, is only deep in the perception within the game, too, that Brody's the guy you want to make a trade with. Brody's the guy you want on the other end of some kind of negotiation because he's not seen as he's seen as being that guy. The way you talked about Dave Stewart when Dave Stewart was the GM of the Diamondbacks, Dave Stewart was absolutely seen as that guy. Yeah, I think we need at least one of those guys. So yeah. even if every front office is reading Thinking Fast and Slow in your book and so forth, that uh, right. <laughs> hopefully you know they don't sink in the same levels because I think the variety does make it interesting. To throw a few more terms into this discussion, anchoring effect, availability bias, optimism bias. Which one best explains the disconnect between you and White Sox fans when it comes to leaving Nick Madrigal off the top 100 list? Um, wouldn't that be optimism bias, right? Uh, White Sox fans seeing only what they want to see and me, I think, taking a balance you know, fairly objective. My arguments against him being on the top 100 are pretty evidence-based, and they don't necessarily want to hear it. That's fine. You don't have to agree. Nobody has to agree with my rankings. Um, you know, as long as they're civil about it, that's really all I ask of people. Um, you know, and I try to point out essentially the base rate for players like Nick Madrigal is really not promising. People who fa- who look at Madrigal's kind of some of his outlier stats like the extremely low strikeout rate and say no he's going to be uh you know good enough big leaguer to justify ranking on a top 100 i've pointed out that the base rate for players of his ilk who are uh particularly who have no power is pretty poor there are i believe only one guy had hit as high as 320 batting average in the last 10 years um, forgive me if you and I discussed this even last time. The last 10 years in the big leagues, only one guy's had an isolated power below 100 and hit 320 in the big leagues. It's D. Gordon. Well, he, you know, one, it was a, an outlier year for Gordon. And two, he's an 80 runner. Madrigal yeah. is not that. And as you start to move the average bar down, 320 to 310 to 300, a few more guys pop up, but it's not many. It's very hard to be a big league regular now if you can't have an isolated power of 100 or more. And the way to do it, if you do, is with speed that Madrigal doesn't have. It was like Ben Revere was another guy on that list. Hmm. And that's not that Revere was ever a star necessarily, but he was much faster. And so you managed to keep your BABIP up a little bit more because you're running for extra hits essentially. Your speed is helping you convert some extra – some a few more balls in play become hits. A few singles become speed doubles or even triples because of – because you can run. Madrigal doesn't run like that. So if you actually look at the base rate for prospects like Madrigal – it's not very promising. So you're hanging your hat on Madrigal being an extreme outlier. Now, maybe he will. White Sox had an extreme outlier in Chris Sale, and I think he worked out fairly well. Yeah, a little bit. So, yeah, he could be, you know, that's what you're saying. You're you're allowed. The White Sox were allowed to take him. It's not that I'm saying that they were wrong or that White Sox fans are wrong. I'm saying I don't agree, and I tried to provide evidence to support those contentions and to do both the individual scouting report because I have seen Madrigal a couple of times – but also bring in that base rate because I do think people who rate Madrigal much higher are at risk of potentially neglecting the base rate for players like him. And it seems like looking at your top 100 list that you know he might have a better career or he's like, he may be even likely have a better career than like maybe 50 of those top 100 guys. 
but he won't have the kind of like six win season that makes like makes your list like a, a <laughs> I wouldn't use a, Sham's too strong a word, but just like how do you leave this monster off this top, top 100 list? Like he doesn't have that kind of potential. He might like eke out, you know, uh, being a two win, three win guy, you know, at his peak. Yeah, but he doesn't have the kind of uh, all-star potential, aside from maybe a fluky first half here and there, that makes you think like oh, that's going to make you kick yourself for leaving him off. Right. I don't. I I really don't think he'll be that kind. There are definitely those players, right, who I leave off and I look back a year, two, three years later and say, well, that was a mistake, and it was in front of me, and I chose not to put that guy on because I really do try to favor upside on the list because i think that's what's more valuable to readers too not only do i think it's more valuable to big league teams and a bit more in line with how they value prospects um i'm more risk tolerant than i think the average major league gm is um, when it comes to players and it comes to prospects but i think i'm kind of in line with them but also it's that um yep look there are there are 25 guys in the minors right now who will have careers that are non-trivially more valuable than players on my list right now. I do not even come close to pretending that my top 100 is these are the 100 guys who will have the most value in their careers. These are the 100 guys who I think project to have the most value but may have a lot of variance around those projections. There are guys on my list who will have zero value, probably mostly pitchers. Um, I think that's usually the biggest thing is pitchers get hurt. Um, I mean, I had Jamison Tyon pretty well stuffed on some prospect lists a couple of years, and the poor guy just cannot stay healthy. Mm. Um, and a lot of his non-pitching stuff, too. It's horrible. And I feel terrible for him. But ultimately, is he going to justify the rankings I had for him in my top 100s? Probably not. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I hope he has some great second half to his career, and he does justify it. But I recognize the odds are he won't. And I bet you Nick Madrigal will have a better career than a couple of pitchers who are on my list because pitchers just get hurt and some of them will zero out completely. But those pitchers are on my list because I think those guys also have the potential to end up for win a season pitchers, for war type pitchers. And I don't think Madrigal has anywhere near that potential. I'd ask you more questions about White Sox prospects, but it seems a little bit weird now. Like, I guess, first of all, I'll ask you, do you think there's any chance of a minor league season this year? I am extremely pessimistic about the chances of that, primarily because minor league teams need fans mm -hmm. to actually make it worth sort of turning the lights on, so to speak, and um, maybe even to stay in existence. And you can't do that. We just cannot have gatherings like yeah. that. We're not going to have gatherings like that anywhere in this calendar year, I think. I think if we have minor league games, it will be – like if they're doing these neutral site major league games, they do might do minor league games – limited minor league stuff at the complexes in Arizona and Florida. But even that probably won't be everybody. And it's going to be pretty, have to be pretty limited. And even then, you're still – think of how many bodies you're getting in a clubhouse at once. Mm -hmm. You know, 50 players, like, I don't know, maybe say 40 players and then coaches, training and conditioning staff and, you know, stadium ops people all gathered together in a minor league clubhouse and backfields in Glendale. That's even that's a lot that you couldn't do it now, certainly. So I think there's a decent chance we just get nothing. We just get no minor league stuff this year. And that would feel pretty devastating. Yeah, do you have like a, a sense of how or what ramifications that would have for like somebody in your position uh, trying to build or evaluate or rank prospects and just having a whole year missing? Yeah, I don't know. Right. But it's unprecedented. I thought about that. I was talking to Eric Longenhagen the other day on the phone and we're talking about what do we what what like do you re-rank guys? 
we're not new information. You just take out the guys who graduated because say that we have half a major league season. Like I, I buy that. I think we might have that. Um, so a few guys will lose their eligibility, right? Luis Robert will, I would assume, play. If they play 81 games, he'll probably be on the major league roster for all of that, right? Now that now that he has the contract extension, he's not going to fool around with his service time. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you? Um, so he wouldn't be on the list next year. Okay, well, someone's got to replace him. But what do I do? Just take the next guy? If the minor leagues don't play, what new information could we possibly have to, one, to share with readers, and two, to make us alter our rankings? That's That has absolutely been on my mind this past week and is why one reason among many, I hope we get something. Now, maybe it's you know, I had somebody in agents say maybe we do a longer instructional or Arizona Fall League because we're also going to have all these draft players who haven't played since February or early March. Um, there will be some drafted players and teams I'm sure would love to get them in and do something, anything, even if it's just instructional league. I'll go scout that stuff as long as it's safe to travel. But mm-hmm. that also might be all we have. Um, yeah. And that would be, it would make it hard to redo rankings after a year of so little new information or potentially none. Yeah. I was looking at some White Sox prospects and like Luis Gonzalez, you know, and then Jake Berger, they're going to be 25 next year. And Mike Rodolph is going to be 24. And do we hold their age against them? Like at that point? Right. Don't we we change, don't we change the ages? You know, I've always had sort of, I would say more mentally, you know, what do I think are the appropriate ages for each level of particularly full season ball age or experience level, you know, in terms of college versus high school. And we're going to have to forget all that for at least a year, right? I think you just have to throw all that out the window old for the level. It's going to be hard to get out of that, right? I mean, be so used to looking at a stat line saying, well, he's 21 and low A. He's old for the level. Well, wait a minute. There was nowhere else he could have played in 2020. So of course he's going to be in low A at 2021 because you can't just run everybody up the ladder too. Yeah. Some guys really won't be ready to face the next level. Some guys probably would be. You know, I think a Wander Frank or like Luis Robert last year where they just kept running him up, running him up. You didn't really have any significant trouble till he got to AAA. So a guy like that probably could get promoted an extra level. And it's fine. It's not going to bother him. They're the exceptions. Though. That's why they're in the top 10 on my overall prospect list. Most guys aren't like those two. And when it comes to the draft, I mean, that's you know, this, that has the same problem where guys are supposed to be matriculated and now they can't. And, and what do you do? Right. When it comes to these draft uh, ideas being floated around in terms of how many rounds and what time of year, do you have anything you're, um, uh, that, that sounds more sensible to you than others? I don't like the idea of a draft as short as five rounds. I think we're just lose. We're going to lose players. Player, players will choose not to sign. Will some many high school players would choose to go to college and then maybe not pan out, not get the development that they would have in pro ball. I worry about some college players who were kind of on the bubble saying, I'm going to go do something else. I need to go make money. I need to go have a job or I'll go back, finish my degree. And they'll just mentally shift to a different future for themselves. And that would suck. Like the, the example I keep throwing out there is Paul Goldschmidt, I think was an eighth round pick and was not as, you know, he wasn't seen as a, a higher level prospect who slipped. He was seen as an eighth round pick. And then even once he got into Pro Bowl, there was a ton of skepticism from scouts and other teams about whether he was even really that good or just sort of a, you know, bat for a slugger, taking advantage of weaker pitching in the lower levels. Guys turned out to be a superstar, top five player in his league for several seasons now. Do we lose Paul Goldschmidt in a five round draft? I don't know. But I worry that that's a possibility, and I don't want to lose Paul Goldschmidt. I want to make sure every Paul Goldschmidt gets a chance in pro ball, and then it becomes up to him and maybe a little bit up to the team that has him as opposed to Paul Goldschmidt 
goes to be an accountant somewhere else, which okay, maybe he'd be happy being an accountant, but we want him in baseball. And before I let you go, um, you know, when, when thinking about this pandemic delay and uh, how you're positioned, you said you're doing you know pretty well, all things considered. And I think part of it is because you don't hashtag stick to sports. Uh, you know, you have your board game interests, you have your cooking interests, people, uh, music interests, people come to you, uh, want to hear your opinions on those things. So I'm curious, you know, based on your, you know, your position in, uh, <laughs> I guess your unique position in the baseball landscape, if you have any advice for baseball fans who might be battling withdrawal and not sure what to do with their summers. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of biggest answer I would say, too, is if they're really struggling with withdrawal, not just from baseball, but from daily life. Like, I've been open about having real issues with anxiety disorder for a long time um, and there are mental health issues elsewhere in my family, too. I am still seeing a therapist through telemedicine um, and have been since the shutdown started. And you know, would encourage people to start doing you know, now is is actually a perfect time to start doing so. We have some extra time and it's a particularly stressful time and it's gonna lead to a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression. So go get help from a professional. There's certainly no shame in doing so and it might really help you get through a difficult time. And then on sort of the more lighthearted side too, if you're just kind of feeling the blues a little bit, it's not as serious or, or you're a little bit bored, which I think a lot of people are. I mean, obviously, you see all these articles. People are learning new languages. They're learning instruments. I don't have that kind of time, and my, I'm lucky enough that I'm in a job that is somewhat reduced by the shutdown. I still don't have the time because we got multiple kids in the house who are doing homeschooling things, and we're trying to like. There's plenty of things for me to do around here to stay fairly busy, but we're also carving out time each day to get together as a family, depending on which configuration of kids is here and. We'll play a game or we watch some classic movies with my daughter who's suddenly got an interest in doing that. Just picking things that are kind of low emotional commitment to. They're very relaxing and that bring us together, but that when they're done, they're sort of done, right? They're light and simple and everyone enjoys them. And then when they're over, they're just over. And you and you, we do always feel like the other night we watched North by Northwest and Charade and all three of us went to bed too late. But my partner – my daughter and I all felt like, hey, we did good work tonight. That was a good thing. We felt good about it. And I think that actually all helped lift our moods a little bit after a very, very you know, sort of, uh, for me, kind of a really stressful week just because of how much I was expected to do around the time of the book's launch. Well, I think you did good here. I think we did good here. And I mm -hmm. think it's a good note to end on and uh, a handy conclusion. So thank you so much for joining us on the Sox Machine podcast. Always appreciate the conversation. And uh, I will plug the book after this and tell people how to buy it because uh, especially now that people have some time, it's very much worth the time. And uh, as you mentioned, or as I mentioned, it's uh, very tidy for the, the uh, concepts it introduced. So you should be in and out of it pretty easily. Well, thanks for having me on this. I really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Everybody stay safe and stay home, please. That's Keith Law, whose work you can find at The Athletic and on Twitter at Keith Law. His new book is The Inside Game. You can find a link to it on the podcast post at SoxMachine.com. And as I mentioned during the interview, it'll be the subject of the inaugural Sox Machine book club, which will be starting on SoxMachine.com over the next week or two. We have a couple of members waiting for their copies, and if you're interested, pick up a copy through your local bookstore or library and let me know when you're ready to start. Now let's take a quick pit stop, and when we return, I'll be handing the keys back to Josh Nelson for his turn to drive this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. When you rely on the internet for everything... 
you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible XFi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired fitness celebrity Billy Blanks. Okay, everybody, our car just got a broken windshield. How about we blow off some steam? Now punch, now kick. Uh, Mr. Blanks, there's no need to be stressed. Geico makes it easy to file a claim online, on the app, or over the phone. Yeah, but what if I never hear back? That's going to make me want to go jab and jab. Uh, nope. Your Geico claims team is always there for you. Okay, do I still get my post-workout protein shake? Sure, Billy. Geico, great service without all the drama. Welcome back to the Socks Machine Podcast. I'm Josh Nelson, and I know it's a little bit odd for those that have been listening to the podcast for years, not having me do the intro, but I think it was a nice change of pace and Jim you knocked it out of the ballpark I'm talking about the intro of course okay but no <laughs> your interview with Keith Law was excellent and I think you, you guys had a great conversation I'm totally sold on the book I was sold on the book before you guys had the conversation but now I'm sold I bought the book through the link on socksmachine.com to help the local bookstores and I'm looking forward to participating in the book club and just listening to Keith and the excellent questions that you were asking, the one, well, there's two questions. The, the one question was, is this a good time to release a book? Uh, and <laughs> with everybody at home, yes, everyone's got time to read it. And it's also not a great time because usually when you release a, a major book like this, when you're a bestseller writer like Keith Law or even our guests a couple of weeks ago, like Eric Loggenhagen and Kyla McDaniel, you go across the country doing these book visits and signing tours and meeting people uh, to help promote the book. And you don't get an opportunity to do that, which sucks. Uh, but I, I think the key takeaway from your interview and what I'm really looking forward to reading the, in Keith's book is the topic of moral hazard. And I, I'm glad you asked that question to Keith about the White Sox. And you kind of gave a little bit of a hint on how you felt about the topic with the White Sox. And when I think about it, 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 it does make sense to me that the White Sox, specifically Jerry Reinsdorf, has always had this issue of having – long-term risks and this kind of goes coincides with the very popular documentary the last dance as well uh when he said that once i negotiate a contract with you don't come back to me to renegotiate and how do you feel after reading the book about the way that jerry reinstorf has managed the chicago white Sox throughout his entire tenureship as, as ownership does that make sense that there's always been this moral hazard within the organization no matter who the gm is I would say to a, a certain degree, it's been there for a long time, especially on the pitcher's side. Um, yeah, I'm right now I'm, I'm kind of looking back at mid-90s White Sox. And when it came to pitchers and, and the long-term deals for pitchers, like Alex Fernandez is one of them. Jack McDowell uh, had some fights with White Sox management uh, going to arbitration every year uh, to uh, quarrel over his value. And as pitchers are starting to get longer than three-year deals, four-year deals, five years, uh, Fernandez got five years from the Marlins, um, the White Sox really didn't go along with that. And it was a long time until the White Sox, I think it was 19, or it was, it was 2008, I, I think it was, trying, no, yeah, Scott Linebrink, I think was the first one. So it was like more than 10 years after, the, you know, these five-year deals started coming, uh, you know, being the major league norm that the White Sox actually went to four. Uh, Bartolo Clone, they did offer him four, but he rejected it. So they had shown some willingness, but 
it wasn't until Scott Linebrink, of all people, who broke the three-year max for White Sox pitcher extensions. So uh, they, they were more willing to go longer on the position player side, but pitchers, because they're more fragile or because they have so much of their value wrapped up in one part of their body that uh, the White Sox were reluctant to go that far. And I think, you know, generally speaking, nobody really had a... a big issues with the White Sox limiting their, themselves to three years, only when, you know, the cost of doing business became five, six, seven years that the White Sox just seemed left behind. And I think uh, when it comes to the the shape of the White Sox front office and, you know, Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams being there for so long that uh, I am convinced that they are, you know, that they do have this big picture in mind of just not wanting to tie themselves up with these long-term contracts that they'll have to deal with the back ends of. And I'm specifically thinking with Machado, you know, after the Padres signed him and after it became clear that the White Sox weren't willing to go nearly as far as Machado wanted. And, and, you know, they had to kind of contort themselves to say that their eight-year deal was, you know, in in some ways a better offer than what the Padres offered. Uh, One of the things that Kenny said was that uh, when it came to you know, trying to afford the other players and, and, you know, thinking about how Juan Mancata is going to get more expensive and Giolito and Eloy Jimenez and all these guys who are projecting to be future stars or fixtures, you know, their price tags are going to go up and how are you going to afford them with Machado on the payroll? That's something you really don't hear too often from other GMs when they're talking about big contracts, whether ones they've signed or ones they've missed. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that this, uh, you know, that while Reinsdorf might be maybe the one most culpable in the failure to sign Machado and Bryce Harper and, and maybe going forward with Mookie Betts and George Springer, uh, that I think the White Sox front office, or at least, you know, the, the, the team president and the, uh, and, and the GM, you know, Kenny and, and Rick, uh, they are comfortable enough with that because, you know, <laughs> while they can't necessarily guarantee that they'll have jobs in, you know, five eight, 10 years. Um, there's nobody else knocking at the door. There's nobody else threatening their uh, job security. So I can see why they might be more fixated on the big picture than most. Moving forward though, does it suggest that when it comes to marquee players like Mookie Betts and the White Sox were not serious contenders for Garrett Cole this past off season or Anthony Redone or Steven Strasburg, they were still active though in this off season, but Nothing more than the four-year deals that they actually signed. And we know that they offered Zach Wheeler five years. But again, it's not the seven, eight, ten-plus-year contracts that the marquee free agents are signing in the offseason, Jim. After you read this chapter and knowing the White Sox history, especially the front office and, and how they operate in free agency, I'm, I'm not talking about their internal players because I know it seems like that's a different set of rules that they're they're okay locking up Luis Robert for eight years because they know they know Luis Robert. They've already invested a lot of money. They invested time. He grew up in their farm system. They know Luis Robert. It's the players that they don't know that are free agents. That it seems to me that they've always been hesitant to make the long term investment to help them in the short term. After reading Keith's book, do you feel that trend will continue or do you think that this past offseason that something has changed that Kenny and Rick, because that they are comfortable in their positions and there isn't a risk that they're going to get fired by Jerry Reinsdorf anytime soon, uh, that they could make that big splash and make the long-term investment that so many fans and media have been clamoring for? I I think with the Sox and and, and trying to 
get bigger, you know, then they've gone with their biggest ever contracts. Like, you know, Grandal set the record, but barely, and it still really doesn't uh, register in comparison to uh, 90% of the other teams in the league, or at least, you know, 85% of the teams in the league. I would say that uh, it's going to take the White Sox getting good before they really pony up for another team's free agent. Like, uh, that's the one thing that's kind of, uh, I think, been frustrating to watch from the White Sox is that when you've seen them spend before and seen them, you know, whether it's the 90s, whether it's uh, after the 2005 World Series, you know, 2012, you know, they, they've had some spending splurges uh, where they've extended themselves or traded a prospect you wouldn't think to acquire a guy and uh, their payroll is above the league average, but, you know, it's not comfortably so or they're not committing it for the long haul. They don't have like a whole lot of contracts tied up. Um, it's because they don't really have the long-term uh, yeah, they don't project well for the long term. They don't like in this this case, uh, the White Sox uh, have really projected well for the near term. Like this this team that they constructed for this season is probably the best they've ever constructed in terms of projections and algorithms. Uh, they've never projected well. So when it comes to trying to fit an eight year contract, a, a two hundred million dollar contract into their uh, picture, you know they don't have the kind of upswing the. Uh, multiple postseason runs, the maybe multiple pennants to where you can project uh, an upswing in attendance and TV ratings and all this revenue coming in that make the uh, contract easier to stomach. And uh, when it comes to the White Sox and how they've built it, it's you want them to say, like, you know, spend first, you know, you have to spend money to make money. Uh, the White Sox haven't been willing to spend the money to make money and they haven't been astute enough or deep enough, talented enough to get cheap talent themselves. So they've been in this very gradual, um, frustrating, uh, incremental rise that uh, they, they finally supplemented this offseason with uh, even one that doesn't really extend themselves. So that's where I think the, the tension is. And should the White Sox, you know, and, and I guess with the speaking past tense, if the White Sox had like a an 88 win team this year, or maybe they they miss out in the postseason, but they they exceed expectations, they look uh, bankable for the next uh, couple of years in terms of uh, locking in their gains, then I could see the White Sox maybe making play for Mookie Betts, a serious one that maybe they get outbid, but you can't you know really have a uh, quibble with the way they pursue these guys, but. With this kind of season and, and no attendance gains and ratings being hard to gauge because uh, sports are so starved if they even have a season, I don't know how the White Sox are going to use the season to project future payrolls. I, I really don't know. Is it is it fine, though, to say that it won't be due to moral hazard or moral hazard would still be in play? I think that's always going to be a small factor. I think it would be a smaller factor. If the White Sox looked okay. projectable and looked like they could win 90 games multiple years in a row and be a big part of it and have multiple postseason runs and all the TV revenue and gate revenue and everything like that, I think that would minimize the obligation the White Sox think they're taking on or the potential albatross uh, that the White Sox front office thinks it'll have to work around, you know, in, say, like 2027 through 2030. Got it. Okay. No, I'm really looking forward to the book. Uh, like I said, I'm really looking forward to reading more about Moral Hazard and uh, what other pieces of the book. Was there anything else in the book for you know to kind of give a preview, maybe tease it a little bit for our listeners that are going to participate in the book club uh, that you think you should pay attention to because this is relatable to the White Sox? 
Well, I think most most uh, chapters are, and that's what I thought was kind of uh, fascinating, especially when I when I ask the Nick Magical question. Mm-hmm. Like there are some cases where um, there are a whole a whole bunch of um, heuristics and concepts that apply. Uh, to one given situation. And that's why I think this book is useful. And that's why, you know, if you can get through it and devote the time uh, thinking fast and slow, uh, that's a, it's a very dense book and uh, more of an academic read. Uh, and, and you have to really devote uh, a whole lot more time to getting through it. Even, you know, getting through chapter by chapter is a lot more of a, a lot more demanding. But if you have the time, I'd recommend reading that just because it does change uh, the way you think and, 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 or does at least change the way you think about how you think and maybe the way you second guess. I think, uh, with, with the way it describes mental systems, uh, the way you first think is really hard to control. That's a matter of just your brain making things easy for you, matter of survival. And, and so your snap judgments aren't really going to change all that much, but it's really the way you consider it when you have five minutes to think about something. Uh, that's really how this book and how uh, Keith Law's book tries to get you to think about uh, um, just your secondary considerations for most decisions in life. And in this case, a lot of decisions that GMs face. Well, the snap judgments help me in Twitter, Jim, with my hot takes to make sure that they're extra spicy yeah. for engagement. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, no, but I mean, like, that's it's. <laughs> Uh, but if you can have like even a couple minutes, like you can add depth to the, that spiciness. So it's ah. not just heat, but flavor. Got it. Add those layers. Yes. I've been watching a lot of food network in quarantine, <laughs> so I totally get that now. Uh, <laughs> but no, uh, again, we're going to have a book club on socksmachine.com uh, for Keith Law's book. So again, go to, go to the website, socksmachine.com. Uh, if you need to buy the book, uh, there is a link in Jim's post uh, covering as far as Keith Law's new book that you could purchase. And it helps out the local bookstores, which they really do need help uh, in this period of time. Uh, and then you guys can uh, read along with us. And it'll be very exciting and very fun to have an online book club. I've never been part of a book club before. Uh, this is a first for me, uh, but it'd be great to interact with everybody else while we're reading the same book. So again, go to SocksMachine.com uh, to get the book and uh, start participating with us. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, let us know uh, if you're getting the book, when it's going to arrive, just to have an idea of when the best time to start is. And I'll try to space out the parts to where even if you can't quite get the book or get started for like the first installment, you might be able to catch up by the second one. All right, let's move over to some baseball news. And... It kind of flew under the radar. I think it was expected, but this does have a ripple effect for 2021, and that is the Cape Cod League. It's not well known for us in the Midwest because obviously the Cape Cod League is in northeastern of the United States, and a lot of people don't know much about it because it's a summer league for college players, but it's a wood bat league and scouts do take what happens in this summer league very seriously because it's their first opportunity for some college players to see how they handle the offensive side of their game with the wood bat. You could definitely tell the difference between the guys that raked in college and they get to the Cape Cod league and they struggle. The power is gone. And then you could chalk that up to, okay, it's the bat difference that's generating that power. It's one of the reasons why Nick Gonzalez, the second baseman from New Mexico State, is a top five pick because he raked at the Cape Cod League. He was the best hitter this past summer, and that just added to his draft stock, 
when there's a lot of skepticism because he's hitting in New Mexico and higher altitude than Coors Field of the Colorado Rockies that everybody thought these video game numbers were greatly enhanced. But he goes to the Northeast. He participates in the Cape Cod League. He leads the league in home runs. He rakes. College scouts are sold. He's going to be a top five pick. He's going to sign on for millions of dollars. But now that you don't have that, Jim, I have to say this is going to impact the 2021 Major League Baseball draft for scouts because they're just not going to have that data that they can bring back to the analytics department and say, this is how these guys handled the Wood Bat League. And here are their track man numbers. And compared to how they do in college, this could give some reassurances that, yeah, it's worth making a first investment of the first round pick into these college hitters. We won't see that. And it'll be interesting to see on how teams scout for the 2021 Major League Baseball draft with the Cape Cod League now being canceled. I would be curious um, if maybe Baseball America or The Athletic, or I'm just trying to think of these, uh, probably Baseball America would be the best one uh, that has all these reports, um, access to you know their in-person reports, to scouting reports, you know, talking about collegiate prospects who succeeded, fared poorly in the Cape Cod League, and just wonder what the correlation is between Major mm. League success and Cape Cod League success, or lack thereof, you know, if, if there's any kind of correlation. Because I can see... Yeah, I can see its value in um, just having a snapshot of how a guy looks when he doesn't have, especially like in the aluminum bat days with the uh, with the major ping uh, oh, yeah. disparity between the two. I think that was very instructive. But now as the bats have deadened a little bit at the college level and had a bit something closer to major league action uh, and, and how wood bats react to hitting baseballs and a little bit more punishment for not hitting the barrel, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if there's uh, you know any less of a correlation between wood bat leagues and uh uh and just how they end up succeeding in in, both early on in the minors and uh you know their first years in the majors no that would be a great project and the data i think is mostly there there's other databases out there for college data that you can use and to make the correlation of the difference between the college and cape cod league numbers and then see if that translates uh it, it is a it'll take a month to do, but I think you're right, Jim. It would be worthwhile to do that to see what the correlation is, and I'm sure you're going to be following the footsteps of Major League Baseball teams because I'm sure this is a question that they wanted to answer. You know, I I know that some of the things that they're looking at we've heard before on this show from various people. Obviously, walk rate is very big. BABUP is something to pay attention to in the college game. If a guy is hitting 320, but their BABUP is like 425 and it does get that high in the college game. Uh, there's some concerns there. Strikeout rate is obviously key because if they're striking out 25% of the time in college, guess what? They're going to strike out 25% of the time or even worse in the minor leagues. That number doesn't seem to improve. And then ISO, which is something that Keith Law was talking about uh, concerning Nick Madrigal. And for those that don't ISO over... 100 uh they don't do much in the major leagues and that's definitely something to pay attention to but you're right jim that that would i mean we got nothing else to do so maybe i'll start taking a crack at it from a white Sox perspective uh and see if there is any type of correlation yeah that's something i just haven't really yeah i've seen it in in draft write-ups and uh you know jim callis's reports and such you know whether a, uh, a guy had fared well or poorly but i've never really absorbed it past 
the immediate draft day and uh, carried it going forward into their you know first few years in the, in the minors and pro ball and such. So uh, I'd be interested. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Major League Baseball draft, we still do not have an exact date when this draft is going to happen, whether it is in the month of June or in the month of July. But this past weekend was the NFL draft, and there's been a lot of other podcasts and blogs and columns and such talking about the specific of the NFL draft. We're not going to get into that as far as the players taken. But in the first round of the NFL draft, so this was all done through Zoom. So online conferencing, Commissioner, um, gosh, why do Roger Goodell? I get in all the commissioners mixed up. I was going to say Rob Manfred. No, that's the baseball commissioner. Roger Goodell <laughs> broadcasted out of his basement, uh, calling out all the picks. And on the first round, they had 15.6 million viewers Thursday night on ABC, ESPN, and NFL Network. It is a new ratings record, and it was up 37% from 2019. Now, the NFL has really tried to make this a big spectacle. I'm lucky enough to have a friend who is part of that, and she handles the VIP things for the NFL for the draft. And the things that I have seen and all the hard work, I mean, it takes months and months and months. It's a show that the NFL is doing for the draft. And they had the best viewership ever going low-key. Everybody do this in front of their webcam. Well, go to your live feed of your webcam at your home office for all these head coaches and GMs. And the commissioner of the NFL is going to make the picks from his basement and it had the best ratings and had really positive uh, reviews from those that covered the NFL draft that maybe this is something to think about moving forward uh, rather than all the glitz and hyping it up and going to all these NFL stadiums or trying to do it from the Las Vegas Strip. I mention this because Major League Baseball's original plan, Jim, was to do the Major League Baseball draft at Omaha at the College World Series, mm -hmm. Major League Baseball was going to try to do a little bit, not as high up like the NFL does, but to add more glitz to their draft um, by having it live at the College World Series. And obviously that's not going to happen. And I wonder, do you think for Major League Baseball, they could adopt a similar model that the NFL has done because I still don't see major sports really picking up in June or July. And it could, I think Major League Baseball, if they follow a similar format as the NFL, uh, can get a big ratings boost as well. Yeah, they'd be dumb not to try it. I mean, their operation when they do it out of the uh, Secaucus studio isn't really all that impressive. You know, they have a bunch of people in the same room and they have some... Uh, you know, a handful of draft prospects who actually show up and are interviewed in person, but most of the interviews are done um, over the phone. And a lot of the, uh, yeah, I remember last year uh, or a couple years ago with Nick Madrigal and, uh, you know, watching the first few picks come off and Madrigal is the first one who didn't sound like he was in a hostage negotiation. Uh, just, uh, you know, had a little bit of life to his voice and such. So I think when it comes to uh, the personality of these guys, I think uh, that the Major League Baseball's draft prospects don't have the same training and 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 uh, knowledge of the spotlight as some of the the top college players do um and maybe that's one reason why it's a little bit easier to pull off as a tv event for nfl but um 
it would be it would be kind of cool to see Major League Baseball do this. And also, I wonder if ESPN would be yeah. willing to get involved or if Major League Baseball would split it off, uh, maybe some of its rating share uh, away from the MLB network to go along with ESPN because ESPN has all the rights to the college games, mm-hmm. uh, or at least not all the college games, but the College World Series and the SEC network and uh, in, in you know, the other... They also help with the ACC as yep, well. Yep, ACC, yeah. And then and I imagine the other college... Uh, collegiate conference networks would also want to get involved even if they're not maybe not directly related but you get a lot of footage on these guys a lot of um the the commentators for these games who have seen these uh firsthand i think you know aside from just going from uh um you know uh greg amsinger and and uh, harold reynolds and uh the 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 standard mlb studio guys but also going to their you know focus on their their best collegiate uh, game analysts and and the guys who have contacts with college coaches and, and jim callis and you, know, you can have a bunch of different voices coming along uh, baseball america guys uh if you can spread out the platforms and have multiple networks covering it to maybe make it feel like a bigger event even if they don't have one place to stage it and they have to go the zoom route yeah, if you have Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo with Kyle Peterson and Ben McDonald, Ben McDonald, Kyle Peterson do a lot of the College World Series broadcasts on ESPN. For the college players that get selected, the viewers are going to get far more insight about these players and their skills than trying to have the Major League Baseball analysts make these comparisons of, well, I saw 10 minutes of video and he reminds me of this current major leaguer. Like it's kind of unfair comparisons, but you know, Kyle Peterson's been involved in the game for so long. And Ben McDonald is a famous college baseball player as well. They both do a terrific job during the live broadcast and Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, they've been doing the major league baseball draft for so long as well. I'm with you. Some type of collaboration between MLB network and ESPN and have it simulcast uh, between the two networks, I think is the best way to go. We can't discount Turner as well because Major League Baseball does have a TV deal with, I think it's TBS, mm-hmm. uh, that some of their playoff games are there as well. I, I think it has to be another outlet uh, than just MLB Network. Because oh, yeah, I Fox think... Sports 1 too also has the... Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, then you can get Frank Thomas, right, into the mix. Uh to provide some type of an- analysis. I- I'm just not a big Harold Reynolds fan, uh, guys. Uh, yeah, Dan O'Dowd, <laughs> too, is also just, you know. It, it, yeah, Dan I, O'Dowd I think, does a great job, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, when it comes to the the formats and just uh, Amsinger and Reynolds and O'Dowd, they just kind of bounce back and forth between those two and Callis, and Callis is the guy you want to hear more from. Right. But in equal time, we're trying to, to put the spotlight on all their prominent figures. It uh, just kind of goes around in circles and gets pretty repetitive, so... It would be cool to have multiple outlets taking a stab at it with their best people. Yes. So Major League Baseball, if you are listening, I highly encourage these next two months to figure out an online broadcast and do something similar to the NFL draft. But please, for the love of God, you do not need to bring up the most depressing stories about (laughs) these guys when they get selected. It's the happiest day of their lives. I do not need to hear about the lowest point. The Tom Rinaldi treatment. Oh my god! Every single prospect. Yeah. It just. Did you watch a lot of the draft, Jim? No, I kind of uh, dropped in and out just to see how they're doing it. Also for like a discussion like this, and you know, there was nothing really else to watch. So, 
but I wasn't that gripped by it to uh, really hang on for more than like 10 minutes at a time. Right, but you saw their stories yes. that they were sharing when these guys are getting selected, especially in the first and second round. I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, his dad's not there because his dad got really depressed and committed suicide. Like, oh my God, I do not need... <laughs> I don't need this. Yeah, although, I, want, I want to see the happiness. I want to see the family crying. Like it's a happy moment. Don't bring me down, ESPN. Yeah, although I guess with the Major League Baseball draft, like the tr- stories of tragedy would be like didn't get his first choice of travel ball team. <laughs> yeah, it's a different different culture, right? When it comes to baseball compared to football. It would be, uh, I think it would be closer yeah. to the Olympics where, you know, when you, when you see ice skaters and gymnasts and all the, the sacrifices <laughs> their parents make in order to fund uh, their lifestyles and futures, I think that's where the stories would come from. Had to take on a second job in order to uh, be able to get this kid on two different teams. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. That's the unfortunate side of baseball these days as far as the sport and how expensive it has gotten. So anyways, that's some draft talk as far as some ideas coming from the NFL draft and the Cape Cod League being canceled. Uh, anything else that you want to chat about, Jim, before we answer some questions in P.O. Sox? Well, I think Major League Baseball, too, is, is uh, when they're talking about televising things, I think they're also thinking about uh, getting involved in this uh, Major League Baseball uh, Players League of the MLB The Show, mm-hmm. which I know you've been watching. I have been watching. Yeah, Lucas Giolito's doing pretty good. I mean, he's uh, he's kind of holding on for dear life of trying to make the postseason. He's got three games remaining, and if the online league were to end, uh, he would be in the playoffs, uh, which is exciting. But my takeaway, you know, we, we talked about with Major League Baseball, the struggles they have marketing players. And all this is like watching Lucas Giolito and his Twitch feed is like if I was sitting behind him, chilling on his couch, watching him play video games. And it's a silly notion uh, to think about because a lot of us have done that. So why are you watching other people play video games when you could play video games? What's the difference between you playing video games and watching a professional athlete like Lucas Giolito play video games? Uh, But with Lucas Giolito, he's doing AMAs. Uh, He's answered a lot of questions that come into the chat. He's very personable. There's a lot of great interaction. Uh, And he has Jason Vendetti (laughs) on his stream uh, calling the games. And that makes it a lot more fun. And watching the other streams as well, like Amir Garrett of the Cincinnati Reds and Blake Snell of the Tampa Bay Rays and Joey Gallo of the Texas Rangers, these guys get into it. They are serious about this. So I often find myself laughing at their reactions playing the game because I have the same reactions (laughs) playing MLB The Show. But it's picked up so much steam now, Jim, that Fox Sports 1 and ESPN, they're going to broadcast these streams when they get into the playoffs. I think they started some of the regular season games. Uh, I think Lucas Giolito is one of the games uh, he was facing Hunter Pence and the San Francisco Giants, uh, I think that you could watch on ESPN. But it's been fun. I mean, if you're trying to find ways to be entertained and entertained with baseball, uh, it's been a good fix watching Lucas Giolito's Twitch stream. Yeah, it takes me back to college a little bit. Like I'm thinking, you know, when I went to college in the 
early 2000s uh, and, you know, watching people in my dorm play Halo or NCAA football uh, on, on yeah. PlayStation. And it was, you know, you'd, you'd have fun playing yourself, but also be fun just hanging around and listening to guys trash talk each other or uh, overreact to misfortune or things going their way. It was, you know, part of the fun of it. And it, it takes me back to that a little bit. Also, I think it's a benefit of baseball's pacing to where you can answer questions and, and keep an eye on the dialogue on the side. While it goes, I think I watched Carlos Hernan a little bit uh, play um, Call of Duty, mm-hmm. and that's a little bit more immersive. And so you're just watching him, uh, you're, you're listening to one side of conversation of him talking to the people he's playing with and getting shot, shooting people. And it's really not all that interesting if you're not uh, directly involved or if you don't know the game that well. But for uh, baseball, where a lot of the appeal of baseball is being able to talk while it's going on, it's it's uh, it, it's fun just listening to him read questions, take inputs. Like I listened to, uh, I was watching him manage the bullpen and watching fans uh, correct him because of the three batter minimum yep. and him saying, Oh yeah, right. about Yeah. I forgot about that. And him correcting his bullpen strategy because fans were informing him and his, uh, you know, his reaction to the three batter minimum at answering questions about that. So uh, there is, I think uh, a little bit of an avenue here for uh Major League Baseball to showcase some of its more engaging personalities, and they only all have to be bombastic. Just people who can respond to fans and and uh, in a whole bunch of different ways. And I think Tim Anderson's good about that, as you mentioned in your post. And I yeah. think Chilito in this case, uh, him being a, a an avid gamer who uh, can moderate his reactions to be safe for broadcast. I think that also helps. Uh, that uh, you know he's somebody worth putting on a camera uh, if he's able to respond to people as they're responding to him. I think that's a whole different, uh, it's a whole different animal from, uh, from just like, you know, saying I'm watching him play a game. Like, no, you're not just watching him play a game. You're also talking to him while playing a game. And he's talking back. And I think there is an appeal that uh, doesn't quite, uh, you, you get it more when you watch it versus having somebody describe it to you. I'm interested to see if any of the sayings that Giolito has when he's playing the game gets adopted by Jason Benetti. Home runs are nukes to Geo. Four seamers are high heaters. And he ends a lot of things in city, like doubles in the gap, gap city, line drives, rip city. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see if Jason Benetti adopts hmm. some of that. Lexicon. Yeah, I just hope that uh, Jason Benetti does not adopt Let's Go. Oh, I'm sure. For every single thing. <laughs> and <laughs> That's one thing I've taken away is that Major League Baseball players love saying Let's Go. Yeah. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I think everybody does based on Twitter responses too, but just, uh, uh, it's one thing seeing it on Twitter. It's also, it's different seeing it uh, just actually voiced. And whispered because he doesn't want to wake up the foster cat that just gave birth yeah. to four kittens in the background. Yeah. And when I mentioned that on Twitter, like people had mentioned, like if you're spending any time around a high school team or uh, softball teams, just uh, they, they uh, let's go is a big part of. Millennial Gen Z vocabulary that uh, I'm not around, especially now in pandemic times. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really around anybody to hear it uh, firsthand. But in this case, like it's uh, uh, demographics, uh, I'm not naturally uh, around. So uh, I guess I'm, I'm getting exposed to the way other people live. And let's go is a big part of the way uh, uh, I would say people 10 to 20 years younger than me live. Yeah. Yep. So we'll see. <laughs> I, I would love to see Steve Stone's reaction if that does happen in the broadcast booth. But uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And again, I highly encourage you to go to twitch.com and you can look up General Geo. That is Lucas Giolito's 
Twitch stream. And uh, yeah, if you subscribe, uh, you'll get alerted the next time that he's on. Uh, it, it is entertaining and he does a great job reacting uh, or I should say interacting with fans. So if you want an opportunity to have direct access to Lucas Giolito and ask him questions, uh, it's been a, a great way to do that. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Lucas Giolito, you can go to SoxMachine.com and I have recorded a lot of his favorites or dislikes uh from the many hours that I have watched this Twitch stream to to capture those and post it on SoxMachine.com. Uh, it's a fun way to learn a little bit more about our star players, uh, the star players, I should say, on the Chicago White Sox. But we have questions from you guys that we have to answer next on P.O. Sox. So Jim and I are going to take a quick break. And coming up on the Sox Machine podcast, it is P.O. Sox. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, Get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Socks Machine or helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And we got some great questions this week in P.O. Socks. So, Jim, let's get started. And our first question comes from Nine Innings Grand Prize winner Jeff Fair. Again, our game show, Nine Innings. Jeff was able to answer all nine questions correctly. He's the second one ever to do it. And Jeff is asking, Jim, my dad and brothers and I had a draft of all White Sox players since 1990, filling out a 25-man roster. Here's the question. After Frank Thomas, given the positional requirements of a 25-man roster, who would your next pick be? And he is judging by career, not single seasons. Uh, we did clarify with that. So with that, I would say the easy number two for me is Robin Ventura. Really? Yes. Just be, I, I basically immediately filtered it to which White Sox players were on a Hall of Fame track or whose you know, uh, contributions during his White Sox career contributed to a Hall of Fame or near Hall of Fame track. And Ventura, before the ankle injury, when you, when you count in the time missed during the strike, time missed after uh, his ankle exploded, uh, was pretty close to being on that Scott Rowland-type tier for a Hall mm. of Fame uh, track. And you know, maybe we'll see with Rowland you know, how he's doing in that regard. But uh, he was close. And uh, when you factor in how difficult it's been for the White Sox to find third baseman, Yohan Makata seems like uh, the hope for the White Sox to finally have a successor, a multi-year successor. Uh, but given that he hasn't done it yet, uh, I think Ventura is the one guy who uh, stands out of that position. And, and I think every other position has at least a few other candidates uh, that make it uh, yeah, not as dire to pick that one guy. Yeah, third base is pretty scarce. 
<laughs> it's it's Rabbit Ventura and it's Joe Creedy. Maybe a couple years of Todd Frazier. Yeah. 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 The a couple of thoughts in my head, because I was going through his Google Sheets as well. And that's why I had to ask based on career single season, because if you're going by single se- season, you can't forget about Albert Bell, yep. right? And his his tremendous year with the White Sox. Another player that I was thinking of, and you could throw this back at me, is Tim Raines. Did Tim Raines do enough in his White Sox career to merit being the second like round pick after Frank Thomas in a draft like this? Not the second pick, I don't think, but he would be uh, a good sneaky value, like say if he were like his fourth or fifth rounder. Yeah, because I was thinking like steals and runs and batting average. I mean, he he filled up the score sheet uh, yeah. his entire career, his entire Hall of Fame career. So that was one of the other ones I was thinking of. The others I was thinking of like Mag, right? Mags, Maglio yep. Adornias, um was one that I was thinking of. Uh, I don't know if and Chris you know, Sale too. Yeah, Chris Sale, Mark Burley. Those were some others that I was thinking about. Uh, Mark Burley would help you with wins and ERA. I, I'm not sure so much about strikeouts, so I think you're right. Like maybe, maybe it is Chris Sale. Yeah, I think Chris Sale is on mm. the Hall of Fame track. We'll see how he comes back from Tommy John surgery and see if he can go into his 30s. Sure. But for the time being, uh, his trajectory is sure Hall of Famer. Yeah, but no, this is a this is a great think piece here, Jeff. So for those that are listening, uh, again, the criteria is. Picking only White Sox players since 1990. Obviously, Frank Thomas would be the first pick that you would make, but who would be your second pick in a fantasy draft like this? Go to SoxMachine.com on the podcast page and submit your pick in the comments section. It'd be great to hear uh, all the options that others would pick again. Jim's pick is Robin Ventura, and I'm going to stick with Tim Raines. I'm going to stick with Tim Raines. Get those steals and those runs and just a little bit of everything. That's kind of how I like my fantasy players fill up the, the stat sheet. So I'm not so dependent on home runs and RBIs, but great question, Jeff. And our next question comes from Mark Sambor. And Mark is asking, Jim, considering at this point in time that, one, the rehab and workouts from Michael Kopech and Carlos Rodon are potentially unsupervised and have been interrupted to some degree, two, a shortened spring training, and three, potentially no minor league play for rehab starts, what is the level of concern with setbacks or increased injury risk if they pitch in the major leagues this year? I don't know. I think like when it comes to this, it's pure speculation. So I would say like I have some ways I can speculate, but it's a good question. Like I don't know if anybody really knows given just how unprecedented the situation is. Uh, I would say Michael Kopech is on a different level than, than Carlos Rodon and Dane Dunning just because Kopech was past his uh, you know pure rehab part of his post uh Tommy John surgery recovery and he was more or less ramping up for the start of a regular season a six-month season and uh, he was throwing 100 in the one time we saw him during spring training so I didn't really have concerns about his timetable or his ability to come back and provide major league innings for the White Sox this year I think with Rodon and Dunning two guys who aren't really you know anywhere close to that level yet to where um, they're appearing every five days and mixing in off-speed pitches and uh, just, just being uh, projectable for a return on a given date, 
that's, I think, a lot murkier. Um, and I can see, you know, we're talking about with Keith Law and, and, and trying to figure out what, you know, the minor league season looked like. I can see maybe having a complex team, you know, having, uh, you know, people like Camelback Ranch and the various spring training sites in order to stay ready and have um, a surplus of players who can step in, even if rosters are expanded to where you, uh, if say two guys get injured on the same day or two, two pitchers get injured in a week to where you have guys who are ready to go and not completely cold. And maybe Rodon can come back in that kind of program and have some oversight with the White Sox training staff and maybe pitching in simulated games or like the equivalent of spring training B games to where you can shape the competition to get a certain amount of pitches in. Um, but when it comes to like trying to, uh, I guess, manage a guy's health while also getting innings, that's going to be a, a really uh, a challenge that I don't know if anybody really knows how they're going to manage it. And, you know, bringing back the conversation, the moral hazard and the idea of like college coaches, um, you know, how college coaches manage MLB draft prospects and how, you know, their incentive is to win that game and win that college title in order to, you know, get a more lucrative contract or get better recruits. And so they don't have the big picture in mind for those college arms. And I think uh, Rodon is kind of the same thing with the White Sox where, you know, he's got a year of control after this and they were hoping he'd come back by the all-star break and be a second half contributor. But didn't really have any big picture plans for him being a big part of the rotation for this year or maybe even next year. Are the White Sox concerned about what he looks like in 2021 and 2022 and beyond? You know, if they can get something from him this year? Uh, I, I don't think they'll be so callous as to uh, sacrifice the rest of his career for this year. But I can see having different motivators and having, uh, if it's an open-ended question in terms of uh what uh, the risks are and yeah, if there's any trade-off between him being able to contribute in 2020 versus uh, not being able to uh, you know have a full and healthy 2021 or 2022, especially I would say in Rodon's case, you know, being the, the, the longer term uh, 2021 and beyond for what kind of pitcher he'll be. Will the White Sox just try to use him in order to, I guess, uh, try to make the most of an 80 game sample? I could see that being the case, and maybe that's a, a there's a good argument for that, given that we don't know what the uh, you can you can only have one season. You can't say what it would be like if they managed him a completely different way. It's going to be baffling, and I don't know how they're going to handle it. But there are going to be a whole bunch of cases where uh, yeah, you can read uh, uh, the inside game and learn about moral hazard and just uh, discuss this along with us. How. Uh, uh, what uh, kind of conundrums and dilemmas they're going to be encountering as they try to bring these guys back while trying to win games in a season where everybody might be trying to wrestle these dilemmas and might be having different trade-offs in mind. Well, it's something that you and Keith discuss as far as you mentioned that perhaps a player like Luis Basabe would be part of a shortened 2020 White Sox roster because He's already got options. They're starting to count. And I thought Keith made a good point that position players, hitters, they need that repetition. They just can't sit around for a year. Yes, this was in the uh, Patreon exclusive part of the show for people not knowing what we're talking about. So this yeah. would be a, uh, a good reason to sign up and get some exclusive content. Yes, yes. So definitely do that. Uh, but those are some other things to think about as well, even for... Not just not just for the pitchers, but any 
hitters as well that have been that have been injured too yeah just uh developments so, over you know do you treat these as development innings do you treat them as trying to win innings uh are they both uh you know maybe there's some overlap maybe there's some uh, tension where you know you, you don't want to bring a guy back too soon it's it's if the if the uh if major league baseball is going to be able to get the season off the ground I imagine this will be a subject of a number of posts that we're oh, going to be writing yeah, about trying to figure out the best way to do these things and or and whether it, there's a best way to do these things. And it might be the reason why rosters get increased to 29 guys. Yeah, right. Definitely try um, to uh, spread yeah. the pain around and, and try not to have some guys be so exposed uh, to yeah. the injury risks. And uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe there's even a pitch count or uh, innings count just for uh, some of these guys, uh, just in order to. Uh, you know, you're almost treating it like uh, college baseball or even high school baseball or even little league. Uh, just try not to overexpose some guys coming back from injuries just because uh, uh, there will be the incentive to overuse some players. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your question. It's definitely going to be something we'll be thinking about as we get closer to the moment that Major League Baseball decides that they are going to be coming back in 2020. Again, we do not definitively know when that will be, but it will be something that Every team in the league and everyone in the media is definitely going to be thinking about on how teams will handle this because every team's going through a situation like the White Sox are uh, with pitchers that are ready for the major leagues, but they're coming off some injuries and they're not going to get an opportunity to have those rehab starts in the minor league. So how are we going to handle this? It'll be definitely something everyone's going to be talking about in the upcoming weeks. But great question, Mark. And our next question comes from Bill Wiggins. And this is timely, especially with the last dance happening about Michael Jordan and in the 90s. Uh, Bill's asking, since the White Sox gave Terry Francona, who was MJ's coach in Birmingham, uh, his first chance to manage in the minor leagues, why didn't they let him try in the major leagues? Well, yeah, I've been looking back at uh, that period of White Sox baseball recently for some posts I'm going to be writing. And... That was a really weird time for the White Sox and Jerry Reinsdorf and Ron Schuler and and they had a whole bunch of different things going on and that's what I'm going to be writing about just all the baffling storylines that can't even fathom right now. Um, but when it comes to managers, I think part of it was that at the time um, when the White Sox fired Gene Lamont in 1995, it was because they they got off to a terrible start that year, and Lamont was a laid back manager who had to deal with a lot of different. Uh, tensions and a lot of big personalities and did a pretty good job managing that. But when it all fizzled on him in 1995, he was let go and they brought in Terry Bevington to be a more intense, uh, in your face manager. So there is that natural, um, you know, hiring the opposite of the last guy they had. And so maybe Francona didn't really register on their radar for that reason. Um, also at the time, Tony LaRusso was fired from the A's in 1990 after the 1995 season, uh, I believe. And then Jim Leland was fired by the Pirates in 96. And he was also, uh, you know, potentially fireable after the 1995 season because the Pirates weren't doing that well. And those were two former White Sox, well, in, in case of LaRusso, he was a former White Sox manager. Leland was a, fire, a former White Sox coach. And there was the idea that Reinsdorf was interested in a reunion there. And so they might have been monitoring the cases of those two guys and trying to hire either one of those two managers and so Francona really didn't uh, rise to the top and also Francona was hired by the Phillies in uh, 96 and uh, he went 0 for 4 when it came to winning seasons with those Phillies teams 
was fired after that and didn't uh, resurface until the Red Sox and had a really good run with them. So maybe, you know, when it came to the Phillies, that wasn't a team anybody could win with. But uh, initially, it didn't seem like Francona really uh, looked like a standout manager in any regard until the Red Sox found him. So even if the White Sox did hire him after that season, uh, you know, after the Bevington season or in the middle of the Bevington seasons, maybe he wouldn't have stood out either. I think really the bigger second guessing when it comes to Francona is not giving him a look or a call uh, after they let go of Ozzy Guillen and hired Robin Ventura. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, without He's a close. doubt. <laughs> without a doubt. So Disney Plus, to be nerdy for a moment, Jim, they're doing this What If series with Marvel Comics, right? All these different types of what if situations it would be it'd be fun to do that with the white Sox. what if the white Sox hired terry francona instead of robin ventura back in 2012 how would that have changed things would we be talking about luis robert and aloy jimenez and all of these top prospects with you know jose abreu etc 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 it'd be kind of fun would adam laroche have happened would adam laroche have happened that's that whole situation, right? Uh, that would be that would be interesting. It would be very lengthy, <laughs> but it would be it would be interesting. If, what if the White Sox hired Terry Francona instead of Robin Ventura before the 2012 season, and how things may have changed? Maybe they win the American League Central and uh, they make it into the postseason. Who knows? All we know is that did not happen in this reality. <laughs> that is a. Uh, Oh, that's unfortunate. But anyways, Bill, great question about Terry Francona. Thank you so much for asking it. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. You can also help support Sox Machine at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where you receive additional content uh especially with every podcast this podcast episode there's additional five minutes with keith law as keith answers some of our patreon questions and there's always additional po Sox questions as well that jim and i discuss uh and answer and each patreon podcast is also ad free so if that interests you you go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today and of course there's also extra writing as well and just to chime on that with major league baseball draft uh i will have the draft database uh that's always been very helpful uh for our followers to kind of track on where everybody ranks uh, the major prospects for the upcoming Major League Baseball draft and with MLB Pipeline and The Athletic and Fangraphs and ESPN all have released their prospect lists. I'll create the database and our Patreon uh, supporters will have access to that database to help keep you guys informed on where everyone is ranked according to the major publications. So check that out coming up soon on patreon.com. Is there anything else that you want to promote Jim coming for our Patreon supporters? Well, I'm going to, ha- we're going to be running out of pint glasses shortly. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, awesome. I-, I think I'm going to be going through the survey, looking through the merch list. So people will participate in the survey. I'll be evaluating the uh, the options for our next uh, premium gift for Patreon supporters. Awesome, 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 awesome! Running out of pint glasses means that we got more. We got new supporters 
helping us out on patreon.com slash socks machine so again we are forever grateful for your guys' support and uh, keep it coming and if you really enjoy our work recommend it to other White Sox fans to sign up today as well at patreon.com slash socks machine but that will do it for this Sox Machine podcast. A huge thanks to Keith Law of The Athletic for coming on the show to promote his book and talk about life and baseball in general. Always great to have him on the show. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show in a number of ways. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and of course, audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Spring is calling and Target's ready with deals for your outdoor space. Grab miracle Grow Potting Mix on sale at two for $8. Plus get 20% off planters and more. Find spring's best outdoor buys at Target where low prices and great deals make it easy to save. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.